excited to start this brand new series. Uh, it's it's an ex- going to be an exciting journey because we're going to take a fresh look at what we believe this rescue attempt took place through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look at Christmas and say, oh, great, it's Christmas. It's, uh, we get to celebrate it, you know, maybe for three weeks out of the year. We sing some songs. Can't wait till Christmas. And it's like it's this one-time event that happens once a year. And it's like that's the only time you need to talk about it because that's really, we go to the Gospels and we go to like Luke and we, we read in Matthew and we read, there, there's where they talked about Christmas. So the rest of the Bible talks about other things. But truth be known, the Bible itself is one continuous story, a love story about this rescuer, this hero that's coming and he can't be stopped. It's a story about this God who loves us. Every book of the Bible whispers Jesus' name. Every single book whispers it. And sometimes if you don't look for it, you, you miss that. You miss the story that Christmas began in Genesis. It works its way the whole way through the Old Testament. And then we see the complete fruition of it in Revelation chapter 22. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to take this journey, and I'm going to show you through Scripture that Christmas was more than what it says in Luke and what it says in Matthew. That it's this story about this rescuer who's on this journey because he loves us, and he won't be stopped. And he isn't stopped. And he's going to continue this journey until he calls us home or he comes and raptures us. And it's this beautiful story of redemption that began before human beings were even created. I love rescue stories. I also like to hear stories about men and women who go through all kinds of opposition to do what they're supposed to, to save and rescue people. You don't have to look far in our world or to look maybe over your own nose to see people who have maybe rescued you, have come after you. All of us had people who've come after us and introduced us to Jesus Christ. All of us had people maybe at different times who physically have saved us. Many of us know stories of individuals who have jumped into water and tried to rescue people and they've lost their lives. I am eternally grateful for a man by the name of Homer Bowes that came after my mom and knocked on the door because her name was on an unsaved list because she didn't know Jesus Christ. And we were an unsaved family. I was living with a single mom and there was four of us. I'm so grateful that someone cared enough about my mom. Put her on a list that says she's unsaved and Bev needs saved. And this man by the name of Homer Bose knocked on my mom's door, taught her about Jesus Christ. My mom received Christ. And as a result of that, all the brown kids went to church. And within a period of eight weeks, the whole family was saved. Grateful for rescuers. And I've given my life to tell people about Jesus. But this story of Jesus begins way back in Genesis. But rescue stories are, can be found everywhere. And I love reading about rescue stories that don't meet the front lines of newspapers. Let me introduce you to a rescuer. You might have never heard of him, but he played a huge part in our world during September 11. And just listen to this account of a rescuer. At 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001, American Airlines Flight 11 struck World Trade Center Tower 1. Across the street at Tower 2, more than 2,700 employees of Morgan Stanley were told by building officials to calm down and remain in the building. Rick Rascorla was in charge of security at Morgan Stanley, and he ignored the official warning. Rick began the evacuation of all Morgan Stanley employees in Tower 2 and 1,000 employees in Tower 5. Panic spread quickly as workers saw smoke point out of Tower 1. Rascorla urged them to remain calm and began singing He began singing, God bless America, and Cornish military songs over his bullhorn while all this was happening. Men of Cornwell, he sang, stop your dreaming. Can't you see their spear points gleaming? See their warriors' pennants streaming to this battlefield. Men of Cornwell, stand ye steady. It cannot be ever said ye, for the battle were not ready. Stand and never yield. He's singing this at the top of his lungs when 911 is happening in our world. And then he told them this through his bullhorn. Be proud to be an American. Everyone will be talking about you tomorrow. At 9.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 struck Tower 2, where Scorla had rescued almost all of Morgan Stanley's employees. But there were still others in the building. As other workers warned Rascorla that he had to evacuate now, he calmly replied, as soon as I make sure everyone else is out. Rascorla was last seen on the 10th floor of Tower 2, heading up the stairs to rescue more employees. 
Because of his response, all but six of Morgan Stanley's 2,700 World Trade Centers survived September 11 attacks. Four of the six were Rescorla and his three deputies who followed him back into the building. To those who knew Richard Rescorla, it was as if his entire life had prepared him for these precious moments. He lived by a code. He had his own philosophy, and he used to say to me, you declare what you're about when you're young, and you try to stay on that road so that at the end of your life, you knew you did the very best you could, said his widow, Susan. Born in Hale, Cornwall, Britain in 1939, Rescorla grew up in the headquarters of the 175th Infantry Regiment of the U.S. 29th Infantry Division. As a child, Rescorla admired the U.S. soldiers and wanted to be one himself. They are a special breed of people down in Cornwall, explained Susan. They weren't little kids playing in the house. They were out running around from time they were two or three years old with no raincoats and no boots. He was strong. He was rugged. His childhood friends said to me that you could tell he was a leader from the beginning. This was something that was innate in him. In 1957, Rescorla enlisted in the British Army and served a distinction in Cyprus, Rhodesia, Susan recounted. When I met a couple of his men who was in Rhodesia with, they said, if you were to meet 20 men 10 or 15 years later, who would you remember? You would remember Rick Rescorla. After his service in Britain, Rescorla moved to the United States. As a platoon leader in the 2nd Battalion of the United States Army in Vietnam, Rescorla again distinguished himself as a fearless leader. He often sang military hymns to calm his soldiers, just as he did decades later on September 11. He returned from Vietnam with a silver star, the bronze star with an oak leaf cluster, a purple heart, and the Vietnamese cross of gallantry. In 1992, Rescorla warned the Port Authority of New York City, the owners of the World Trade Center, about the possibility of someone using a truck bomb to attack the pillars of the towers in the basement parking garage. They ignored him. And in 1993, terrorists used that exact method. Rescorla was vital in the evacuation of the building and was the last man out. After the 1993 attack failed, Rescorla believed there would be another attack. And this time it would be a plane used as a gigantic missile crashing into the towers. Rescorla even recommended to Morgan Stanley that the company leave Manhattan and relocate to New Jersey. He was ignored again. But at his insistence, Rescorla had all employees, including senior executives, practice emergency evacuations every three months. In 1997, Rescorla became director of security for Morgan Stanley with its headquarters in the World Trade Center. On that infamous September morning, Rescorla called Susan, his wife, to tell her what was happening. She said, I was hysterical. He said, stop crying. I have to get my people out. Susan described how very methodically, calmly, and lovingly he explained the situation to her. If something should happen to me, I want you to know that you made my life, he told me. Then, of course, I said to him, and the phone went dead. He had to finish his mission. He had to do what they call in the military, doing the last sweep, making sure that everyone was out. Rick's remains were never found after the collapse of the towers. Susan's marriage was cut off after only two years, but it was an unforgettable two years. He was a man for all seasons. He was giving and thoughtful, and our relationship was as if he had known each other forever and ever. We were inseparable and wanted to spend every moment together when we were not working. I don't want America to forget Rick Rescorla, but even more than that, I don't want America to forget what happened on 911. Another example of a rescuer, a man on a mission, someone coming after and, and being the last one out, making the final sweep, making sure that the mission that was given to them, they finish it and complete it. How about you? Are you a person that follows through with your word? Are you a man and woman of your word? When you say you're going to do something, do you follow through and do it? Are you good for your word? There's a story that runs through the pages of the Bible. It's about a God that loves us so incredible. 
And it began way before the foundations of the earth. Let me set this up for you. Some of us think, how did we get here? When did it all begin? How do you know this began this way? But I'm going to walk you through this story today. Before the foundation of the world, when God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and when the angels themselves were gathered, and they had this plan that was developed. And this plan was a rescue attempt. This plan meant God would come and live with us. And then he would live with us and abide with us. And the plan was God with man. Yet we're going to see that something happens to this mission that he was going to be on. That it gets opposed. And God has to do something to rescue us in a radical way. But it begins way before Adam and Eve. It begins before the earth was created. It begins in the heavens. And I want to show you where this rescue story begins. Grab your Bibles, and we're going to look at this rescue story. And we're going to see that nothing will stop God from doing and rescuing us. Turn to the book of Job. Job chapter 38. It's a passage in the Bible that records information before Genesis 1. It records what was going on. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Be glad to put one in your hand this morning. Turn to Job chapter 38. This relentless pursuit to rescue began a long time ago, way before Adam and Eve. Job chapter 38. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Stand with me and we'll read it together. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Now keep in mind, these were words, and this is a time, it's recording a time before the earth was formed, before Adam and Eve were on planet earth, and this is what was there. Look at Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Read this with me. Ready? Read. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. You have a seat. Job is, as the Lord speaks, he's speaking. He says, were you there when this took place? Before the beginning of the earth being formed. When the foundation of the earth was being laid out. Now look at your Bible again. Who was there during this time? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Who else was there? The angels were there. So before man was created, before earth was created, angels were there. And it says this, that while God was talking about this, this earth that was to come, and he was laying out the footings for it, the angels, look what it says, shouted for joy. They were singing together. So there's this picture that God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're telling the angels about this plan. They're like, this is awesome. And so as he's telling them, they're singing for joy. The earth's coming. There's going to be people and human beings. And they were excited about it. And so it was a moment in time that everything was perfect. No sin. Satan hadn't sinned yet. The earth had yet to be created. And during that time, this rescue attempt is about to begin. But part of God's original design was to build an earth and inhabit it with human beings. His plan was for Adam and Eve to be put in a garden, and we're going to read about it here. And he created Adam and Eve without sin, and there were angels without sin, and it was just like he planned. He would come be with man, live on earth. That was a perfect place, and it was a perfect picture. That was his plan. And yet it begins to take a 180-degree turn because of sin. Now, when did all that take place? People often ask me, they say, Jim, when did Satan fall out of heaven? And when did he sin? How do you know he sinned? Where's it at in the Bible? Do you just make that up? Or do people just believe it happened? How about this Lucifer person? Where does that name come from? I hardly ever see it in scripture. Where did, when did all this happen? Sometime after creation, we know to be true. And most certainly after the sixth day, when everything was declared very good, something took place. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. This is significant. The earth was created. Adam and Eve were created. God blessed the earth and said, 
to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then it says this in Genesis 1, 31. Look what it says in the first book of the Bible. God saw all that he had what? What's the word? Made, and it was what? Okay, pause, just, just pause. Let's go back here. For the foundation of the world, there were angels. There was God, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They were laying out the markings and the footings for the earth as we know it. Adam and Eve are yet to be created. Satan isn't Satan as we know. We're going to see in a second, he was an anointed cherub. He was a good angel. He was, he was one of God's angels. Sin hadn't fallen out of heaven. So the plan is build an earth and there's no sin. God will come and live with his people. There's not sin. But then it says, after he declared it was very good, Adam and Eve are created. They're, they're created. The earth is created. And then something takes place. Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven. In fact, it tells us in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, it says this, O morning star, son of the dawn, have you been cast down to the earth who once laid low the nations? And then in Jesus refers in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18. These are important verses. I encourage you to write these down. Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then in the book of Revelation, Satan is seen as a star that had fallen out of the sky to the earth. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. Let me just give you a little sidebar here. This is really interesting information. The name Lucifer, where does it come from? Why do we use the name Lucifer? If you look in the Bible, in the original, if you look in the, the, the language of the original, morning star is a better translation than Lucifer is. And the reason we came up with the name Lucifer, because there's a guy by the name of Jerome. And he had a book, a Bible called the Latin Vulgate. It was in Latin. So when he read this text, he decided because a Latin name for morning star was Lucifer, he named the morning star Lucifer. And so we get that from the Latin. We don't even get that from the Hebrew. That name comes from the the Latin Vulgate by Jerome. Just a little sidebar information. Needless to say, morning star, Lucifer, Satan, same, same, same. So you have this picture. We are told this also, that Satan sins, and he's thrown from heaven to earth. After the earth was created, before Adam and Eve sinned, because it was very good, he's thrown to heaven, and he along with a bunch of angels. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 tells us this. It says that the angels are innumerable. It means there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Hebrews 12, 22 says there's thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. But there was a third of them that chose to rebel. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 to 9, says that the the devil, the serpent, or Satan, who leads the world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 says this, Satan is referred to as the star which fell or cast down to earth. And then it says this in Revelation 12. This is significant for us today as we live in this world today. It says a third of the angels went with him. The third of the innumerable amount, measurable amounts that Hebrews 12 talks about, they left. But here's what that means. One third left. They went with Satan. They became demons. They became evil. They followed after Satan. But know what it means? Two thirds were left and they're ministering spirits and they're on our side. And the last time I did my fractions, which was a long time ago, two-thirds is more than one-third. That's good news for us. And so when you think you can't go on, not only do we have a God that we already know, we fast forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He overcame, he overcame death. Satan thought he won there. And we're going to get there one day before we get to the Christmas Day story. He thought he won there. And God said, uh-uh, I can't be stopped. Resurrection. And as a result of that, not only do we have ministering spirits called angels that rule and guard and protect and guide us, but we have two-thirds of the angels, and two-thirds is more than one-thirds, and we have a God who overcame Satan. So listen to me today. No matter where you're at and no matter what you're facing, no matter what opposition there is, God is stronger and bigger and more powerful, and we can win. That's the picture, short and sweet. I don't care where you're at. Let me just give you a little sidebar regarding angels. People often ask, well, what's an angel? What's an angel do? What's, they're called ministering spirits in the New Testament. 
And if you look in the Old Testament, God would often use angels. He would come in, and an angel of the Lord would come, and it would strike a sword, and it would kill thousands of people at a time. Even right now as we sit here, I often pray for protection. God, send your ministering spirits. God, guard the, 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 the corners of my home. And the reality is, is we can cry out to God and say, God, I need your help. And you know how he often sends help? He sends his angels, and I often say, God, send them to 20081 County Road 146 now. And immediately the angels can come and they can guard and they can stay and listen to me, church. Pray to God. Pray to Jesus. Ask him for his help. And the reality is two-thirds of the ministering spirits want to help us. They're on our side, battling with us and for us. If there's one-third that decided to go with Satan. Let's back up for the foundation of the world. God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The plan was create an earth. We read in Job. A place where, where it'll be an awesome place where man, Genesis 1. We see a man and woman are created. God creates an earth. It's perfect. And then Genesis 1.31, he says, it's good. It's really good. And then we read in Revelation that it wasn't good. Because it says Satan fell. Lucifer was thrown from heaven. And put that after that. Now darkness. Now there's an enemy. God's plan to come get us is going to be opposed. So what does he do about it? I want to give you some more insight. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. People often ask, give me proof, Jim. Show me where it's at in the Bible. How do you know Satan fell? Give me, some, give me, give me a passage. Where did he begin? You should underline this. You should mark this in your Bibles. This is important. This is Satan's beginning. This is where he began. This is what happened. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. This is all important in this rescue story. This is where the enemy appears on the scene. This is where opposition comes. Ezekiel chapter 28, look at verse 13. This is definitely not a book that you often go to for your morning devotion, so I'm sure it's not marked this morning. But Ezekiel 28, look at verse 13. You were in where? Okay, Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian what? That's an angel. So I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. There's a point in heaven where wickedness was found. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God. And I, what you? Expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. I, I threw you out of heaven. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the, what? Earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings by your sin. Many sins of dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So there's this picture. Foundation of the world. They lay it out. Angels are there. They're celebrating. So God follows through with his plan. The earth is created. Adam and Eve are created. Genesis 1.31. Good. Very good. Perfect woman, perfect man. Never going to happen again. That's good. Really good. Satan. Sometime after that, pride sets into his heart. And he's thrown from heaven to earth. God's plan was to come and live with Adam and Eve and walk with them. Now it's going to be opposed. So would he stop? Would his mission say, well, I'll just let him go? Well, I'm not worried about him now. After they sin, I'm not worried about it. He would be opposed. The rescue must begin there. So picture, if you can, while Adam and Eve are in a perfect garden, Perfect in every way. Beautiful flowers, plants, animals that they named, that he named. Communication, just walking through a garden, completely naked and unashamed. They didn't have any fear. They didn't have any panic. There wasn't any shame, no guilt. Just walking through this garden. Beautiful place, just without sin. No shame and no guilt, no darkness. Oh, incredible. They had nothing to fear. God's plan was in full motion. They didn't know what was coming. Up to that point, all they knew is, wow, there's a, Adam was saying, there's a woman that I completely understand. First time and only time ever, there it was. Adam says, woman says, there's a man that actually 
does what he's supposed to do all the time. First time ever and ever again until. There it is, this beautiful moment. It's like honeymoon week. Now, those of you who are married, you know that honeymoon week, that, that week where you shut everything out. It's just, it's just you and your bride or, and you and your groom and, 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 and you're just alone. It's like nothing matters. You don't think about bills. You don't think about, you don't think about troubles or hardships. It's just you and together and it's just this blissful moment. Just go back to that moment. That's what it was like in the garden, and yet there was no sin. Satan wants to stop this. He becomes prideful, and he sends in heaven because he wants to be like God, because he likes how he looks. I look pretty good. Hey, look at me. I look good. Buff. I'm proud. I could be like God. Sends. He throws him out of heaven, and now there's this opposition. Satan tries to derail the plan. But one thing he did not consider is that there is nothing our God cannot do if he says he's going to do it. With God, all things are possible. His promises remain unchanged. There is power in his name. Can I just pause for a second and and, and think through this? Christmas took place not when Jesus was born. It took place way before the foundation of the world when this rescue plan was coming and the whole way through the Bible, through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you go the whole way through. You go Job, Psalms, Proverbs, you work your whole, Ecclesiastes, work your whole way through. You go through Malachi and you finally get to the end. You see, Jesus is whispering in every book, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. I'm coming and I can't be stopped. I'm coming and I can't be stopped. It's this beautiful picture that he won't be stopped. And I don't care what Satan does along the way. We're going to see it in every book. Satan tries to stop it. And Jesus says, huh, I can't be stopped. And as, as we know Christmas, that was just part of the Christmas story when he was born in Bethlehem. Because post-Christmas, Satan is still trying to stop. And he says, no, I can't be stopping. I'm coming to rescue you. Jesus is willing to do whatever. And he's relentless in this pursuit of us. But stop and consider this fact for a second. How Satan actually believed that somehow he could stop this plan. He actually thought he could derail God's plan. By the way, I believe he still believes that. I believe that Satan is the father of lies and he's been lying for so long and deceiving so many people that he deceives himself to believe that somehow he'll rewrite the pages of Revelation. I really believe he's deceived himself and he's deceived his demons and he deceives hundreds and thousands of other people to believe the same. And so he began this whole mess in Genesis 3 with a lie and it would never leave and it's still around today. The Bible even calls him the father of lies. Turn to Genesis 3. Look at the opposition that comes. Look at this plan. Turn back to Genesis 3. Take a look. Look what happens. Jesus is on a mission to rescue us, to live with us. And now all of a sudden, it gets, oh, gets turned because Satan falls. And now the serpent comes down to earth. Look at Genesis chapter 3. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Just, just pause for a second. I can't help but get by this every time I read this. Adam and Eve up to this point saw all kinds of animals. They were there. I mean, they saw mammals, they saw reptiles, they saw birds. But how many of those animals and reptiles and birds ever talked? It's like, if you're walking through the garden one day and all of a sudden there's this snake coming along and it starts talking, wouldn't you just stop and say, dude, you're not supposed to talk. No one else is talking. I mean, wasn't there like red light? It's like, when I read this, it's, why didn't they know that animals and reptiles and mammals and they're not supposed to talk? It's like, wouldn't it have been like, wait a minute, why are you talking, dude? And then it talked in a voice that was recognizable to them. You would think that it would be a red flag, but let me, Satan talks to us today the same way, and you hear these things, and you would think, why doesn't that person recognize that red flag? Same thing continues. So the serpent talks, and it says this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will what? Die. Lie number one coming from Satan. You will not surely die. Lie number one, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, 
Lie number two, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, like Satan said it would, she took some and ate it. She also gave gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized what? That they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When you look at this account, everything changes from this point. Just changes. For the first time, human beings felt panic. For the first time, human beings felt antsy. For the first time, shame and guilt. For the first time, this garden that was perfect, all of a sudden, there was this this hesitation in in their walks. They were scared. They were afraid. They felt shame and guilt. And so they went and they hid from God. Up to that point, they didn't because there wasn't sin. I got to believe that even the, the, the animals notice. Why are they so spooky? And it says they were ashamed and they hid from God. There was darkness and guilt and the garden was poisoned with deceit and fear for the very first time. Opposition. Jesus was coming. He was going to be with man and now he's coming and there's sin. And there's an enemy opposed to making that plan continue called Christmas. And... God's heart was broken. I often wonder what that was like for God in that moment. Because the Bible tells us that they walked with God and they, he would call out to them in the garden and they would respond. And there was this sense of this community that was just precious. And now all of a sudden, he's about to call out to them and they don't want to answer him. It's like a parent's heart. When they're broken, when they see their child do things that they tried to instruct them, don't do that, don't do that, don't eat from there, don't hang out with that person, don't waste your life, don't, 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 don't. And when we do it, as kids, our children's, our parents' hearts are broken. God had a magnificent dream. So this dream is still continues, but the plan takes another turn because all of a sudden God realizes he's opposed and they need a redeemer. God would always love his children and be on this relentless journey to rescue them, even to this day. God's creation began to unravel as we know it. And from now on, everything that was supposed to live forever would die. Even that, flowers would wilt. Human beings would die. Animals would die. Birds would suddenly drop out of the sky. They were supposed to live forever. All because of sin, things that were supposed to live forever would die. This was a dangerous moment in history of mankind, because had not God intervened with an unusual act of grace that I'm about to show you, we wouldn't be here today. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. In my mind, this is the first act of grace that's unusual in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 says this. Okay, now put into context, Adam and Eve had sinned, and now, and they were, they, 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 they knew it and they were ashamed. They were hiding from God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, it says this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not allow, be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of what? Now, up to that point, they ate from the tree of the good knowledge and evil. That's when they sinned. But now he says, you can't eat from the other tree of life. Then he says this in verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. He banished him. After he what? What's the word? Drove the man where? Out. He placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, angels. And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the what? Tree of what? Now, why is that an act of grace? How, when you look at that, why? I mean, when I look at that, why is that an act of grace? Didn't he kick him out? Say, get out of the garden. Why, why, Pastor Jim, is that an act of grace? An act of grace said, hey, stay here. We'll work this out. Why is it an act of grace that he banished him? And not only did he banish him, he put cherubim. The regimen that are strong and protectors of the angelic guard. And he says, hold a sword. If they try to come back, don't let them in. And so there's this picture that we have way back before Christmas, December 25th, as we know it. Adam and Eve have sinned. Satan is standing there and he's seeing them leave away with 
this, this, this sadness on their face and this sense of guilt. He's standing there like this. I won. Because he thought he did, by the way. He actually thought he won. He couldn't predict the future. He didn't know what was happening next. He didn't know about the cross. He didn't know that Jesus had a plan outside of this. As far as he knew, Jesus was going to give up on them, and that was it. He thought he won. Why is this an incredible act of grace? And here, here's why it is. If Adam and Eve had walked back into this garden, walked back in, walked over to the tree of life, grabbed a piece of fruit off that tree, yanked at it, and took a bite, you know what would happen to them because they had sinned? They would have been locked into sin for eternity. Eternity. Never again to be redeemed. If they would have walked back in and took a bite, and they would have been locked into sin, never again ever having a chance to be redeemed. And so God said, get them out of the garden. Let them go. And stand there and don't let them back in. Because if you let them back in and they walk to that tree because they've sinned, that's an eternal, it's this tree of life. If they eat from that fruit, they will be locked into sin forever. And you know what that means? You and I wouldn't be here today because none of us, none of us, none of us would have the option for Redeemer because the two they started with would not have a chance to be redeemed. Church, this is an amazing moment, this tree of life. And so now you have it. Foundation of the world. They create. They think about it. They build the planet, the earth, the people. Satan falls from heaven before Genesis 1.31 or after Genesis 1.31. Adam and Eve, the serpent comes, a talking serpent as it is. They listen to it. Eve blames it on the man. Or Adam blames it on the woman. Eve blames it on the servant. Serpent, And now God kicks him out of the garden. And this tree doesn't appear again through the pages of Scripture. Until, until, I'm going to show you. God makes a promise that he will never stop pursuing us. And that's what he did in this moment when they left the garden. I can't describe to you how important this is in the story of Christmas and his pursuit and his plan to rescue us. Satan thought he had God right where he wanted him. Sinners leave the garden with no hope of ever getting home because sin cannot enter heaven. He stood there smiling and waving goodbye to Adam and Eve with a sly grin because he thought he had won for good. Let me show you a beautiful picture, though, of what appears. Now we're going Genesis, Exodus, number Deuteronomy, going the whole way to the end. Now go to Revelation. Look, 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 at, look, 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 look what happens in Revelation chapter 22. Last book of the Bible. The story of this pursuit continues. And we're going to see it over the next couple weeks. Revelation chapter 22. Look at verse 1 through 3. Let me show you a beautiful picture of of God's plan. That he will not be stopped. Revelation chapter 22. Look at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, John says, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of that city, heaven. On each side of the river stood the tree of what? Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Listen, church, here's the good news. Genesis, the tree of life, is there. God kicks them out of the garden because they sin. If they go back and eat this thing, they would be locked into sin forever because they sin. It's the tree of life. God removes them from the garden. No one can get to the tree. He takes the tree of life, puts it in the new heaven and the new earth. You and I who are redeemed and have passed on, Satan's already in hell. We get to walk into heaven. We get to walk to those trees and take a bite and lock us into this perfect state forever. That's good news. That's the picture of redemption. Jesus said, I, you, Satan, you think you might have won. It's, it's a pose right here, but listen to me. There's a day coming when the, the eternal state of those that I'm rescuing will eat again from that tree. And when they do, bam, eternal state. From this moment on right here, the reason they couldn't eat from the tree is because they needed a redeemer. And the Redeemer was Jesus Christ. And he knew when he banished them from the garden that he would replace the tree of life and become the Redeemer. 
And so he begins this pursuit of trying to rescue all of us who need Jesus, who need redeemed. Because if you and I eat from the tree of life and it go down Main Street in Goshen, there's the tree of life and you're not saved and you bite eternal state. He removes and he says, bite into me. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the redeemer. I'll save you. So the quest is beginning in Genesis. Jesus is on a mission to rescue us. And every book of the Bible whispers his name. It says, Jesus is coming and he can't be stopped. Yet Satan isn't finished either. He's on a mission every day. Oh, yes, he can be stopped. Let me show you. I can stop them. And so he all he tries to do day and night with his one third of the innumerable angels that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 is to help us, push us, prod us, and move us away from God. So we spend our lives running so God can't get to us. Yet the word of God says that God is on this mission to rescue us. And there are people in this room who God is after. There are people that you know that need Jesus, that Jesus is saying, I'm not done yet. I'm not coming back until Bob gets saved, Sally gets saved, Tim gets saved. It's an, but Satan has an all-out assault on your life. But then he gives us this promise. Turn to John chapter 14. This, this, this message continues. Look at John chapter 14 in the New Testament. Look at verse 1. It's a promise that you and I can look at today. Jesus comforts his disciples with this. He's about to be crucified. And he's about to become the, 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 the sacrifice for us. And then he says this in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be what? What's it say? Trust in whom? Trust also in whom? In my father's home, house are many rooms. King James sends many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Then he says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's this picture of hope that we have today. Listen to me. Jesus kept his promise in Genesis. Jesus kept his promise in Exodus. Jesus kept his promise in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua, Judges, Ruth. He, he kept his promise in the, old, in the minor prophets. He kept his promise in, in the gospels. He kept his promise in the epistles. He kept his promise the whole way through. And then in John, he says, I'm coming back and he will keep his promise. He's coming back to get us. Here's what that means. Those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who have driven a stake in the ground and said, this is the day I crossed over and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. This is what he means. If you physically die today, guaranteed from his word because he keeps his promises, your next breath is in the presence of a loving God. Or he says, if you don't physically die, the other way I'm coming back, I'm gonna allow this thing called the rapture occur and those who know Christ will be ushered out and you will be with me Bank on it, church. Bank on it. He's kept his promises the whole way through. And this rescue attempt continues. You see, Christmas is a love story. It's more than Bethlehem. It's more than Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1. It's more than that. It began in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's the story of this hero who left heaven. And he's coming after us and he's coming to rescue. And he's on a relentless pursuit to get us back. And every book of the Bible whispers, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. I'm coming and I can't be stopped. Genesis whispers, Exodus whispers, Leviticus whispers, Psalms and Proverbs, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. Zechariah, Malachi, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. First and second and third John, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. Jude and Revelation, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. 